0: Is our criminal justice system about to get hit with another COVID-19 wave of instability? Judge Kevin Allen explains that, plus how we might get through it. I'm Lawrence Klede, and this is Legal Talk Today. Hello everyone, welcome to the show. We're going to be talking about our criminal justice system today and a possible second wave of instability from COVID-19 that could have a real big impact on it, especially as it struggles to reopen. But before we get to that, I want to thank our sponsor, NBI. And of course, that's short for the National Business Institute. Taught by experienced practitioners, NBI provides practical, skill-based CLE sources attorneys have trusted for more than 35 years. Discover what NBI has to offer at nbi-sems.com com. That's NBI dash, meaning the minus sign, S-E-M-S dot com. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Judge Allen. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you, Lawrence. Well, so you co-authored a piece for Bloomberg Law with, uh, Lucas Rentschler is, did I pronounce his last name correctly? Yes, correct. Yep. And you all, uh, you all called out a possible second wave of instability coming from COVID-19. And of course, you know, the courts are just beginning to open up. So this would be a devastating blow for everybody that is just waiting for these courts to open up. And so part of the piece also talks about some of your main concerns, like these externalities that will occur if we do not get our courts up and running, uh, At 100% here real soon. And in addition to that, you all went one step further and started coming up with some ideas on how to stem some of that harm. So can we start from the beginning? Can, Can you give us kind of a, I guess, to help the audience out, to kind of get them in that frame of thinking of where we are, just could you specifically define what you mean by that instability in that second wave?
1: Sure. And thanks for having me on, Lawrence. I appreciate it. During the COVID-19 crisis, uh, we all know that courts all across the country have severely restricted access to the criminal justice system uh, for obvious reasons. But this has created a sort of a building of cases that uh, those involved in the legal profession know are just going to hit as soon as uh, we're able to open up the courts. Some courts have slowed down um, considerably. Some have shut down completely. The Sacramento County courts are still closed. The only thing you can do is file. They're not even open for business. So this means that only the most severe cases are being heard. And in the criminal justice system, we know that the vast majority of the cases are are not the severe cases. They're property, drug-related types of cases. And so what's happening is you have this building up of cases that need to be dealt with. And it's going to hit, unfortunately, at a time when the states just don't have the money to deal with it.
0: Yeah, you brought, uh you brought up the Nonpartisan Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. They released a study that really has you all worried. And so why is that specifically?
1: Well, they came out with a study, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, came out with a study that indicated that the collective budget shortfalls of the states could reach as high as $500 billion. Wow. Yeah. And I know here in the state of Utah, right off the bat, uh, the word went out in talking with my colleagues that just be prepared for a 20% reduction in your budget across the board and that's not even counting for next year when the when the revenues continue to fall and so we're just not going to have the money to deal with this huge wave of cases it's going to hit the courts when we need it the most and we simply can't afford for both budgetary reasons and public safety reasons to just sit back and wait for this major crisis to happen which based on as you look around the country is you know three or four or five months away
0: you know, we talked about uh, pent-up demand uh, on an earlier episode of this show, but we were we were talking about it from a, a law firm's perspective, and so you know. Uh the pent-up demand was talked about like this 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 opportunity for business. The courts have been shut down. You still have these these cases that are pending, and these are, these are people that need legal services. And so the pent-up demand, and the reason this was brought up was that law firms that are able to take on this additional volume, this glut that's about to come through the court system in a, in a relatively short period of time when it finally does open up, you know, the law firms that can handle that additional volume are the ones that are going to be successful, and the ones that can't, they're really going to lose out. That's going to be lost. Demand to them, and so conversely, on the other side of that, the the courts are experiencing this pent up demand, but it's it's uh, it's creating some externalities. So I wanted to talk about some of those those specific issues that you all are worried about, those externalities that come from a pent up court docket.
1: Yeah, there's a couple of different concerns I have. One one is with the courts themselves; their capacity to handle this many cases is just going to be overwhelmed. And for those that practice in the criminal law, um, everybody knows that despite everyone's best efforts, it turns into sort of a criminal justice processing mill where they're just trying to get through these cases uh, as quick as possible. And naturally, the emphasis is just going to be with that many more cases, just moving the cases through the system as fast as possible, and instead not trying to implement an evidence-based solution for each probationer. And what this does is it just, Just continues to perpetuate the already overwhelming problem we have of not really dealing with why these people are in front of the courts instead of just putting them through the mill, putting them in jails and prisons and hoping for the best. And I think all of us could agree that that process just hasn't worked. And so the second concern I have is that the resources to help those people within the criminal justice system just won't be there. It's easy to say, just lock them up, they deserve it. But this is rarely rarely the best solution it's and it's one we just can't afford anymore we already incarcerate more people than any other country in the world including china and russia we also have one of the highest rates of crime in the world so something just simply is not working and the second reason that these folks who find themselves in the system more often than than not is just perpetuating a lifestyle that they inherited from their childhood so if we do nothing to break the cycle Then we are creating a self-perpetuating mess that's only going to get to be worse as the budget crisis hits. This flood of cases that are coming.
0: When, as part of your is your piece with uh, Bloomberg Law, you presented some of these evidence-based tools as solutions to these problems, and they they sort of came down into three primary categories. There was decriminalization of certain crimes. Uh, There was the use of specialty courts and there was also using technology to do some monitoring through GPS. And so I want to start with the decriminalization of certain crimes. And so you refer to nonviolent offenses to look at for decriminalizations, but uh, specifically, which ones were you talking about?
1: Well, I I, I think there's evidence to show that uh, decriminalizing marijuana possession for personal use just should no longer be a criminal offense. And as a judge, I cannot tell you how frustrating it was for me to on a packed court calendar at the time I'm dealing with murders and rapes, I have to take 10 to 15 minutes to deal with a kid who's there on his third possession of of marijuana for personal use. It was such a waste of resources and time uh, when you, especially when you take into account all the police action that goes into enforcing those things. I think the evidence is pretty clear that decriminalizing marijuana would save millions billions of dollars and we're really not gonna be any worse off and i'm not advocating for marijuana use i'm just saying that it is it is something that i think is becoming more clear and clear and clear. and then the other kinds of stuff that i think that we can take a look at is is declassifying some of the severity of these crimes i remember sitting in a a, a sentencing commission and we were talking about how we're going to classify domestic abuse. And I had a case the day before I, on my docket. I had someone who appeared in front of me for meth use, first-time meth use, and it was a third-degree felony. The very next case was, a, was involving a gentleman, I don't know if you can use that word, but a man who had severely beat his wife, and it was a Class A misdemeanor. And I just could not believe the kind of message that we were sending as a community, that the simple possession of meth was a third-degree felony, but beating up your wife was a Class A misdemeanor. What kind of message are we sending? Um, so I think we need to take a really hard look. And Utah has since done that. They've declassified felonies uh, for just mere possession to to misdemeanors. Um, but that needs to happen, in my opinion, uh, across the board. The mere possession of, of drugs generally means you're an addict, and we just need to deal with that. Shoplifting um, is another one. I'm not saying decriminalize shoplifting, but in most states, if you have three shoplifting charges, all of a sudden it's a felony. Well, we need to start taking a look at the reason why most people shoplift. And there's tons of evidence to indicate that it doesn't always deal with the person needing food or needing whatever. It has a lot to do with generally a mental illness underlying or other types of problems. And, and we need to start dealing with the underlying problem instead of taking someone. Who has shoplifted for a third time and spending anywhere, by the time you throw in jail and prison, by the time you calculate all that up, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for a $20 shirt. We've got to rethink how we deal with this and rethink how we classify a lot of these crimes.
0: You know, when I read that, uh, I, of course, thought of my uh, my local 7-Eleven, and so uh, there's an immigrant family that runs my local 7-Eleven, and I live down the, the hill from a university. And so this 7-Eleven is at the intersection of a lot of major highway exits. It's you know down the hill from from a university. And so it, it services a lot of different segments of the population, whether it's students on the way to class or somebody picking up a coffee and going to work. I mean, a lot of people utilize this. It's a, it's a uh, staple of our community, and unfortunately, you know, they are victims of of shoplifting quite a bit. And they have, there's a homelessness problem right there. And so some of the homeless people, unfortunately, will harass customers that are trying mm-hmm. to get in the store and, and occasionally become violent or pseudo violent there. And so it makes this 7-Eleven, you know, not as enticing to go to. And there's this hardworking family that, uh, you know, their their property uh, value is being diminished, but also their income. You know, if people turn away from this place, there's lost revenue. If merchandise finds its way off the shelves uh, without being paid for. They're taking a Loss there, you know. And so when I saw low value property crimes maybe being decriminalized or public order offenses, this harassment, you know, I thought of them. You know, and so I guess my my follow-up question is is you know, if we decriminalize that or make the penalties less severe, how do we make a whole those people that these particular crimes impact the most?
1: Um, that's a great question, actually. And and it's a valid question. I think any citizen who has to deal with that in any form is gonna ask that question and it's a fair one. I think what we're trying to say is that what we need to do is treat the reason why these things are happening. It doesn't mean that we don't punish them at all, but it means it we sort of need to take a look, a closer look at, at why these things are happening in the first place. A lot of uh, serial shoplifting can be related to a mental illness. When I had somebody in front of me that had was a serial shoplifter, Nine times out of 10, I'd send them to be evaluated, and they would have bipolar. Um, Because during a manic phase, they just, for whatever reason, that was their go-to. And lots of times, they didn't even know what they were doing because they're in the middle of this manic phase. So we need to look at other types of programs to get them into, get them the help that they need to try and break that cycle. One of our major points is that you can't just put people in jail. I mean, let's, a homeless guy, if you're going to take a homeless guy and you're going to put him in jail... Good for him. He has food, shelter. But do you think he's going to quit shoplifting when he gets out? No. Is the person who has a mental illness, are they all of a sudden become cured because they spent you know a week in jail? No. we got to take a look at why these things are happening and try and address the underlying reason. I think it's clear that putting people in jail and spending thousands and thousands of dollars, once you move them all through the criminal system, it doesn't work. So let's spend a fraction of that money to try and get them the help they need and hopefully stem the tide of some of these, these smaller crimes.
0: Well, we're running out of time, but I do want to hit uh, two last questions, Your Honor. And so uh, the first one is I'd like to you to tell us about the specialty courts versus incarceration and why you think that they provide a, a better answer to those problems. And then also you said in there that they may save us some money, that there's some evidence to support money savings for the taxpayer. And then on, on the second one, and we'll get to that, but I do want to get into your GPS program through smartphones. So can we start with the specialty courts?
1: Absolutely. Specialty courts are some of my favorites. I ran a drug court and a mental health court, and so I've seen firsthand how these work. The purpose behind these courts is to treat the underlying reason why these folks are in the criminal justice system in the first place. If you're an addict, locking you up does not cure the addiction. If you have a mental illness, and that illness is the reason you keep committing criminal acts, then locking you up does not cure your mental illness. If anything, it actually makes it worse these courts are designed to give maximum accountability with maximum opportunity to treat their addiction or their mental illness. And the underlying goal, and they're quite effective, is if you treat the reason why people are in the criminal justice system instead of just putting them in jail, which only exasperates the problem, then they're not going to be back in the criminal justice system. The mental health courts that I ran, we had people go on to get their PhDs and and get reunited with their families and, and, and get good jobs. And, and we even had a person uh, go to law school. I mean, and these were people who had been in the criminal justice system forever because we never dealt with the main reason why they were there. Drug courts also very, very effective. And there's tons of evidence to show that they are.
0: And so before we get into the GPS uh, program with the smartphones, you know, you, you said drug addiction and mental health, but what are some of the other areas that these specialty courts would address a little bit uh, I guess more readily than just a regular court?
1: Well, what they they're designed to bring people in every single week at the beginning and they have to report to the judge. They come they report to the judge. Yes, I'm going to my treatment. Yes, I'm clean and drug courts you test them often often You you do the same thing in mental courts because co-occurring disorders is, is often common with those who have mental illness But they have to report every single week and so they have accountability to the judge and the judge can help them by saying Okay, you're struggling with this. You need to go see this counselor. You need to get a job and you always have the constant threat of going to jail but yet, that's not the main tool that we use. And if we use it, it's only for a couple of days, and then we get back to trying to treat the addiction. So, for the first time in most of these people's lives, they're being held accountable for their recovery. They're being given the tools, either through medications, if, if there's mental illness involved, or through treatment, drug and alcohol treatment. They're being given these tools that they need to be successful. And by doing that, we put them back with their families. We get them jobs where they're paying taxes and they're no longer a problem. Families are being reunited and taken care of instead of having to go on welfare because there's no one there to help uh, bring home food. And and, and just the keeping families together in the first place is helpful to our society as well. So this is typically how they work.
0: All right. well, thank you, Your Honor. And I just have one last question for you to close it out real quick. The smartphone GPS program, how would that work? And then what types of crimes would it be used for?
1: So this is one of my favorites, yet from my experience, it's one of the least used. So a GPS ankle monitor costs $7 a day. You put that on someone, and instead of keeping them in jail for either pretrial purposes or even on probation purposes, you can literally say where they can go and what they can do and if they travel outside of that geographical area and you can just put it into the system that's monitoring them their probation officer is alerted or pre-trial services is alerted um, if your probation officer wants to know where you are if you're meeting curfew they just pull it up and they can see where you're at at any time there's some of these ankle monitors that will read your alcohol level in your skin so if you're told not to drink any alcohol as part of your probation It's going to read it in your skin, uh, whether you you are or not. And if it does, it's going to alert your probation officer. The ability to help people stay out of trouble, stay away from places where they typically commit crimes, stay away from people. You can even say you can't be around anyone else that's on probation, and they have the same ankle monitor. And if you two are together, we're going to know about it. It just provides a level of accountability that just cannot be given by a probation officer. And accountability is important. It helps people change their lives. It just really does. And it's so cheap. But for whatever reason, we don't fund it. I would tell somebody who's getting, uh, instead of sending them to jail for six months, be like, okay, you gotta wear this ankle monitor, you have all these restrictions on you, and it's $7 a day. And they'd look at me and say, well, I don't have a job. How am I gonna pay for that? And so they go to jail at 60 bucks a day to the taxpayer. They're very effective.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us, Judge Allen, and thank you, listeners, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate us in your favorite podcasting app. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody.